0: Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, another one-on-one
1: conversation with Clay Jenkinson and Professor Darren Staloff. Darren Staloff has a book I greatly admire, Hamilton, Adams, Jefferson, The Politics of Enlightenment and the American Founding. The book reassesses the three great men of the founding, Hamilton, Adams, and Jefferson, and shows that in some respects, Hamilton was the greatest exemplar of the Enlightenment, among them. You might expect him being
0: a fan of Hamilton that he would go after Thomas Jefferson but actually he
1: has quite a high level of respect for Jefferson. He does. The book really opened my eyes and when I read it I thought I want to interview him not only about the situation at the time the early national period but how this reflects on our own national crisis in the early 21st century.
0: Please join us for all that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to discuss current American events with President Thomas Jefferson, who is seated across from me now. Good day to you, Mr. Jefferson.
1: Good day to you, citizen.
0: Mr. Jefferson, uh, this fast-paced world that I live in as compared to the three-mile-per-hour world of yours were inundated with news of uh, of the nation of politics and one thing that we don't talk about very much and i wish we would is our national debt something that i know you dealt with uh, i i would guess every
1: day of your presidency there is almost no more important issue than the national debt of the united states in fact i gave my presidency to the retirement of the national debt i did almost nothing else as president because i was obsessed with this i believe that a nation must balance its books just as a family ought to do i think that a national debt is a very dangerous thing effectively it's a way of taxing the future our children and our grandchildren without their consent it's irresponsible we should tax ourselves to the level of our needs and then we should live within the level of taxation that we are willing to sustain only in times of of critical national emergency where the very survival of the nation is at stake, say we were invaded by France or Britain or both, that's the only time you should ever undertake a national debt. And then you should immediately have a plan to pay off that debt within a limited term of time or be able to explain to the next generation why they ought to help because you save the country for their happiness.
0: Mr. Jefferson, that makes good sense to me. I'm not certain that today's American citizen generally feels that way. Um, there are those who say that a national debt is a good thing. In fact, Alexander Hamilton, I believe, said that during your time.
1: Well, even Hamilton said that a national debt well-managed is a good thing. I think he might be appalled by the level of your indebtedness in your own time, I saw what happened to Great Britain because of its national debt. and it, Britain went into decline. It couldn't maintain its services. it It began to have to borrow heavily, and the interest on that debt began to make it difficult for Britain to do the things that a a great nation needs to do. This was a warning to us, the national debt of France. You know, the French Revolution came about because the debt was too great to be serviced, and the taxation of the of the least able people in france was making them um, not only poor but starving them so these are serious matters and i think in your time you've all sort of given up and you assume that whatever happens that things will be all right but history teaches us that a runaway national debt will eventually destroy the very country that showed such lack of fiscal responsibility how can we as citizens
0: uh, impress upon our elected officials the importance that we feel should be attached to this problem?
1: Well, I think, first of all, citizens need to realize that they're part of the problem. You know, the American citizens are the beneficiaries of this because government spends lavishly on this program and that program and this part of the welfare state and so on. So average citizens are getting benefits from government that can't be sustained economically. So people need to realize that if you you show fiscal responsibility each family is going to have to do more for its own self-reliance and welfare than perhaps they are now willing to do. And if, if the people of the United States show fiscal restraint and insist upon it from their government, the government will get in line. It's not as if the government is doing something that the people are against. The people have shrugged their shoulders in your time and have assumed that somehow it will magically work out. It sounds a little bit like my own private finances. You know, I died deeply in debt Uh, I'm not the best person to talk about one's private finances uh, on principles of this sort, but it eventually destroyed everything. We lost Monticello after my time. My daughter Martha had to live on public charities uh, to a certain degree. The slaves at Monticello were unceremoniously sold to pay off the, the just crippling debt that had consumed my life and my family and Monticello in the the last few years.
0: I think it's difficult for politicians to come to the public and say, in order to retire the debt, we need to cut spending and raise taxes. The
1: basis of a republic is citizen restraint, citizen awareness and involvement, and a belief that we can control our own destiny and not simply let events take their course.
0: Thank you very much, Mr. Jefferson.
1: You are welcome, sir.
0: citizens and welcome to this week's episode of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. This week, a special one-on-one conversation between Clay Jenkinson, the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, and Professor Darren Staloff, who just wrote a book that you have read and it sounds like a
1: fascinating book. The book is tremendous. It's been actually out since 2005, but I just discovered it in in a Google search. On Jefferson and Enlightenment, I read it and I realized immediately how brilliant he is and what a really extraordinary book this is. I don't agree with it in full measure, but that's neither here nor there. He has done a lot to resurrect Hamilton, not as just a great figure in the Ron Chernow sense. He sees Hamilton as a brilliant and almost perfect exemplar of the Enlightenment. Commerce, trade as a civilizing force, the need for banks and a a sound fiscal system, the need to helped to seed and create infant industries as the world was making its transition from Mr. Jefferson's agrarian paradigm to the more mixed economy that we all enjoy in our own time. And he sees Hamilton as having somehow absorbed this set of insights of the Enlightenment, and he applied them in America. And his chief opponent was Thomas Jefferson, who was sort of locked into an ancient Greek pastoral model of a of a farm economy and to and, and people who were steadfastly agrarian. And, and Staloff's point is that was never in the cards, and Hamilton saw the future much more brilliantly than did Mr. Jefferson.
0: It, it was very interesting to hear him acknowledge that while Hamilton's view of America may be the one that ultimately won out, it was Jefferson, the visionary, that he had such high respect for.
1: Well, a nation needs both, I think. You know, So we need practical people like Hamilton who can give us a vibrant economy and build the foundation of national success and even national greatness. And we are all, of course, beneficiaries of that work that Hamilton and others did in the early national period. But you also need a dreamer, you need a visionary, you need a, an idealist who sets the bar high for our national uh, behavior. And we're fortunate that we have both Jefferson and Hamilton if either one of them had prevailed, David, the country would be, I think, much less um, amazing as a construct of human ingenuity. And then in between them is the grumpy, irascible, uh, usually pessimistic John Adams, keeping them both honest. He, He found both of them to be excessive in and of themselves, but he was able to blend in his own constitutional thinking some of the best of both Jefferson's republican ideals and hamilton's uh, hard-headed sense of what's really possible in a society
0: well it's a great conversation so much fun to listen to i think what i hear you saying clay is that we really needed all three
1: Uh, you spoke with professor staloff
0: via zoom should we go to that conversation now
1: let's do but just just this one more one more thing david Uh, I really am most happy when I'm interviewing somebody whose views are different from the ones that I have imbibed over the last 20 or 30 years, because I'm not done learning about Thomas Jefferson, and this was, I think, a particularly insightful and thoughtful interview. So let's listen to my one-on-one conversation with Professor Darren Staloff, the author of Hamilton, Adams, Jefferson, The Politics of Enlightenment, and The American Founding all right well look i've been so looking forward to uh to meeting you i love your book i didn't know your book I'm not a great hamilton lover but i picked up your book and, and i'll tell you what struck me most about it was uh, the strong case you made for hamilton as an ideal exemplar of the enlightenment in america and normally i take jefferson's view that he was an outlier and kind of a proto-capitalist who didn't understand the genius of the american experiments so you gave a lot of time to this book an enormous amount of reading, you know, Hume and Locke and Rousseau and so on. You can't write an intellectual history without doing all that reading, yeah. which Jefferson himself did. And you see what they produced, that as, as Henry Steele Commager said, Europe envisioned the Enlightenment and America stalled it on a landscape. I love that idea. Yeah. How well are we doing, do you think? You know, we, we always go through strains, and
2: uh, this sometimes they're more severe than others. Um, We've clearly been in one for a bit now. Uh, I am not in a position to say that it's all over. I just don't think so. Um, You know, we've, look, we've certainly been through a good deal worse and we've had more divisive times. Uh, Have we had better times? Sure. But very often we have better times when we face a a real serious threat, uh, an external threat or some economic threat. And that forces us to come together and recognize how much we have in common. It's Sometimes it's successes that drive us apart. So if I could return to the 18th century, you know, when we think about the differences between the two parties, and they were very vicious. I mean, every bit as vicious as now, maybe worse. And even between the exemplars of Hamilton and Jefferson, who had some hard feelings towards each other, it's easy to forget how much they had in common and how much they agreed on, which was probably about 80% of stuff. You know, we tend to really focus on the things we disagree about. But when we can return to the things, some of our core beliefs, they're very often shared. So, for example, Hamilton and Jefferson both wanted a popular republic. They both wanted a fiscally sound state. They both wanted ordered liberty. Exactly some of the precise configurations of that they dif- disagreed about even where they disagreed, there was a lot of overlap, which is to say there's Hamilton certainly in his reports favored a program of manufacturing and he wanted to advance it. He thought that was the future. To be fair, Jefferson also thought that was the future. They, they just had a different sense of the timing of it and how desirable it was. But if you ask them, well, do you both ascribe to a stadial view of history? They certainly would have said yes. And if you'd asked Jefferson, in the long run, what is the future? Is it going to be manufacturing and urbanization? He would have said, yes, it's just I'm not in a rush to get there. (laughs) And and that's not so much a judgment of reality, because I think they agreed on a lot of that. It's a judgment of both style of thought and and of preference. You know, Hamilton was a city slicker. (laughs) And he couldn't get there fast enough. I mean, you know, and uh, Jefferson just wasn't. Um, He saw that that probably was going to be a future at some point, but it wasn't to his taste. So, I mean, there's a lot of reasons uh, uh, separating that. Part of it also is, I I think Hamilton was, in the things he was interested about, he was actually deeper. He was a a real nerd. And when he studied something, he got to the bottom of it and worked really hard, but he didn't have the breadth that Jefferson had. And that's what's really stunning about Jefferson is... Of all of the founders, he definitely has the most Catholic tastes um, in that he's not only reads political philosophy and moral philosophy and what we would call metaphysics and epistemology and critical religion, but he's also an aesthete. I mean, his literary tastes are impeccable. <laughs> I mean, he's so incredibly well read. His, his gustatory tastes are spectacular. I mean, he's in an age when a lot of people still sweeten wine <laughs> and she drinks, he, he drinks it like a grown-up. And, you know, he, he's, he's got his, uh, as he travels through Italy, he's learning, which do I like better? The Piedmontese or the South French pasta and get me the recipe. Cause I'm making this when I get home.
1: It's the more remarkable that Jefferson could do this because one of the things you say over and over again in your book is that the enlightenment was essentially an urban phenomenon that cities made it possible with their coffee houses and their taverns and their philosophical societies and their transactions and their, their printing presses and their libraries and so on, and that this is how it worked. And yet the most urbane of the founding fathers is a man who lives on an isolated mountain in the middle of nowhere in rural Virginia. And so it's the more remarkable that Jefferson was able to be that person with so little surround, no coffee shop to go to, that's absolutely
2: true. Um, you know, in, in in the Old Dominion, they found ways to create something like that. Uh, the dinner parties he had with the governor while he was a student certainly would have immersed him in those mores. And I suspect, you know, polite dinners after courthouses and after church. Jefferson's pursuit of enlightenment was not simply, was not primarily social. It's primarily intellectual. I mean, it's- The Republic it's, it of looks. Letters. That's right. Rather than- the evening tea, yeah, exactly. It's so it's it, it is very much um, something one and imbi- he imbibed, not entirely, but largely, I think, through text. Though to be fair, he did eventually get to spend time in urban environments and spent. I I think he
1: really loved Paris. The happiest years of his life, arguably, were those five years. His wife dies on September 6, 1782. Jefferson has what people around him regard as sort of a breakdown. They fear that he may never recover. He plays the grieving widower. I'm not saying it's not true, but Jefferson also shaped his responses through a certain aesthetic that he was picking up from Lawrence Stern and from yeah. the cult of sensibility. And so there's a there's always a Jefferson in a way there never is in John Adams, a bit of pose. I I, I don't entirely disagree with
2: that. I largely agree except that for for a man who is so broad-ranging in his intellectual pursuits, and it's so much a part of his identity, maybe pose is a good word. I'm tempted to say it's more that these are scripts which help him understand his experience.
1: Yeah, a text through which he could channelize this set of experiences. I agree (laughs) with that. But nevertheless, he learned early on to shape his responses through a series of Stoic texts, of of Shandiist texts, Oceanic texts, yeah. That, that it was very important to him to have this intellectual matrix through which to uh, reflect upon his existence and to take the biggest of them all, his agrarianism. So yeah. his agrarianism is not exactly physiocratic. It's more okay. Virgilian. It's Horatian. And it's actually an interesting tension to
2: sort of the agrarianism of, um, of Harrington. Mm -hmm. in that he he is definitely an agrarian Republican, but the the classical agrarian Republican favors the independent yeoman because he's a hoplite, because he walks around with a gun and he's ready to fight at any time. That's something that's not central to Jefferson at all. I think it's much more of an ideal of personal autonomy and independence. And to, to give it that distinction between posing and living through a text for him the, the farmer is an individual
1: who self-creates math. and he's truly independent but independent not so that he can go fight between harvests he's independent so that he owes no entity the deeper convictions of his outlook i think that's right so it, it's cultural in that way he's also independent in that he lives off his own labor mean not jefferson but his ideal oh no his ideal.
2: i mean this is part of what is attractive about jefferson is that his ideal does not include him i mean he knows that that if if they build the right republic there will be no thomas jefferson's in it at least as slave owners they they
1: may be rentier or something like that but even at that his vision is of you know there's this famous well not famous there's a letter he wrote when when dabney carr married his sister and he says look at him they live in a small place with a table and a couple of chairs and they have bacon and they seem to be perfectly happy and you can hear him thinking that's not going to work for me you're listening to the thomas jefferson hour
0: we'll be back in just a moment
1: to the special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, our one-on-one series of interviews that I'm conducting with eminent thinkers, historians, writers, and others. And this week, we are discussing the American founding with Professor Darren Staloff. His book, Hamilton, Adams, Jefferson, The Politics of Enlightenment and the American Founding, so deeply impressed me that I sent him a note saying, would he be willing to appear on the Thomas Jefferson Hour? And he willingly agreed. Amazing conversation, David. I just love to listen to these historians who step back a little from the minutiae of the era we're talking about and try to find a synthesis of what was really going on. What were the political, the geopolitical, the economic dynamics that were sort of roiling around the United States as it tried to make its way in the world in the late 18th and early 19th century? And of course, three of the Greatest figures of that era were Hamilton, who gave us the national bank and sound fiscal management; Adams, who uh, believed in a kind of heroic model of the the monarch, the self-sacrificing monarchical or semi-monarchical president, and Jefferson, who, in some respects, is our first Democrat. And the dialogue between these three giants is extraordinary. I've just really admire the way that that uh, Darren Staloff is able to open up that world for us
0: you spoke with darren stela via zoom and let's return to that conversation now
1: so there's a paradox you know he he believes a that the yeoman farmer is the ideal citizen there's no question about that he also of course is a planter with 200 slaves and thousands of acres that's right And, and then he also knows that his consumerist habits are such that a yeoman could never have them that's right Well, I mean, in in some ways, that's why
2: I call him not a full romantic, but a proto-romantic. So the the elements that were breaking from the commercial enlightened view had been articulated by the middle of the 18th century. They were there, uh, just ready to be uh, drawn out. Jefferson is sufficiently intellectually sensitive that when he undergoes that tension, I think of losing his wife and has a very bad second term as governor. It really ends in an ugly way.
1: He abdicates, essentially.
2: Yeah, and, and and barely escaped censure. He probably
1: deserved it if it weren't for Yorktown.
2: You know, he says something interesting about that, which I think is is fair. He said, you know, I may have been guilty of failures of the head. But not the heart. But not the heart. And that says everything. That decoupling of the two is you're taking this cult of sensibility, and that's that first step down the path to, to the romantic. From the enlightened perspective, it's easy to see that as a kind of, well... Hypocrisy, you're you're preaching what you won't practice. But from the romantic perspective, it's in fact an awareness of contradiction, an embrace of that, of that tension, which helps create the the romantic vision. It's not seen as a weakness, right? Do I contradict myself? I contain multitudes, says Walt Whitman. And I think Jefferson is the first to, to to see that promised land of what will become, in a lot of ways, a very profound, not only political but cultural force in in America after him for at least the next uh, 60, 70 years, if not much more.
1: So let me use your own argument to see if I understand this. In the case of all three of them, there was a youthful period of optimism about the idea of a republic, followed by a, a period of disillusionment that came during the war and after it. And Hamilton essentially leaves behind all that youthful. Radical Republican talk and almost takes joy in repudiating some of that in his later life. Likes he likes to prick the balloons of people like Jefferson with their illusions. And Adams, who's always in some sense the most honest of all of them, wakes up and realizes, "Oh, we're not really up to it, and human nature didn't really make any sea changes as it crossed the Atlantic. We're going to have to take a very realistic view of this if we think we're going to produce anything like a republic." And then he spends the rest of his life trying to build the infrastructure that would actually make that possible. And he's trying to be a Jeffersonian in the sense that he really wants a republic, but he also has a very serious pessimism about human capacity. Jefferson's disillusionment comes, as you put it, because he can't remake Virginia as a Republican society. They don't really go for his penal code. They don't really buy his educational plans. They don't want their publicly funded libraries and so on. But with Jefferson, two things. One is he never lost his fundamental optimism about the project. That's number one. He dies an optimist, although he might be a shaken optimist. And number two, this maybe is why he, one reason why he bifurcates and moves more in a romantic direction, because the real world, the world through which clear lenses show him what Virginia is, is so amazingly disappointing. But that romantic world that he can envision beyond the next horizon or in the ideal yeoman's hearth and home allows him to maintain the optimism without having the messy problem of having to deal with how disappointing everyone has become.
2: So I think that's fair. I think that's understandable psychologically. As you mentioned, he's raised in the stoic mores of Virginia when given lemons make lemonade. He certainly does do that and he's creative at it. But I think there's also, again, that aesthetic element. One of the things that can make disappointment or pain bearable is to turn it into beauty. And if you think about his love of um, Ossian, that is the essence of the, that early romantic view. When he goodness. wasn't
1: alone and being taken in by
2: McDonald's. No, no. I mean, a lot of people, when they sure they, so. they they, yeah. But it is what a heartbreaking story that is. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's the last act of Hamlet, everyone dies. And so to find beauty in that, is something that is not what you would expect from an earlier period of sunny optimism. This is, we find the beauty in the tragedy. And I think you even see it in notes in the state of Virginia, where he gives that wonderful speech by uh, Logan. My family's dead, everyone I know is dead. I'll be dead soon and everyone will have forgotten me. And Jefferson finds that deeply moving. I mean, he sees it's horrible right? He's not happy about that in any sense, but he's not someone who would say, well, something has to be done about this. I think in Jefferson's mind, something has been done about this. I chronicled
1: it. This is an oceanic moment for Jefferson, seeing Logan as living on the edge of the cliff, looking into the abyss, and behind him is a world he can never return to. And Jefferson (laughs) takes a certain kind of joy in that aesthetic, even though it's tragic, well, I mean, is, isn't that what tragedy does, though? It, it it shows us something that's horrible and tells us it's bad, and this is the way of the world, and uh, find beauty in it if you can. But it's also convenient, is it not? I mean, I uh, leave for the moment your your yeah. your stern attack on the, on that other dissertation and notes on Virginia on slavery on on race. But if you look at Logan as the as the last of the Mohicans, that clears the path to a ruthless conquest of the West. In other words. It's over. It's essentially over. This is a not uncommon thing among American
2: romantics. Emerson, too, has that same reaction. He His heart bleeds, but he's like, well, this is these are the forces of history. It is, of course, it is entirely possible and correct to note how convenient <laughs> that is. But at the same time, it's also
1: entirely correct to note how human. In the second inaugural address, Jefferson has a long paragraph about Native Americans and he says basically they only wanted to be left undisturbed that's all they wanted but he doesn't say so let's figure out how we can work this thing out so that they are they can in some sense have some places that are undisturbed it's again that notion that that kind of elegy for native integrity native authenticity
2: one might might say it's it's the tragic price of progress i think in his mind and i think he does feel that as i say there are other right thinking 19th century romantics who do see the same thing, who say, you know, it's horrible, but there's nothing to be done. This is the price. This is history moving forward. It's the price we'll pay. In a weird way to come full circle, that's also, I think, what he's doing with his agrarianism, because I think that's also a tragic vision. I mean, Drew McCoy has argued um, in the Jeffersonian Persuasion that both he and Madison, who's maybe even a more militant agrarian than he is, both think that in the long run, Hamilton's right in the long run, the future is urban and industrial, but they take a kind of oceanic view that, well, let us pine for and hold on to for as long as we can, this this dying ideal.
1: Or maybe they're saying, we know what's coming, but if we can hang on to it a little longer than you might expect, we might encode into the American character certain values of Republican independence that Hamilton doesn't see. Maybe. uh, But another possibility, which I
2: wouldn't discount, and I don't think is, is discreditable, is a truly tragic vision that we won't, but we can get another good 70 years, and then the future will have to, hopefully science will come
1: along and give us some development to make the moral sensibility better. Joseph Ellis says of, of this that slavery in America is a Shakespearean tragedy. Native American fate in this country is Greek tragedy. In other words, we could have done some things about slavery. It's not clear what we could have done about the conquest of the of the continent. It depends how you think about it.
2: If you think about it in sort of very
1: broad, and I would argue um,
2: visionary romantic terms, there really isn't much. You've got these two cultures and one is just a technological outmatch for the other. If you look at it in a more, in more what I call programmatic way, I'm not so sure that's true. At least the Cherokee were clearly adopting a lot of uh, American folkways. Um, Had developed banking. An alphabet, newspapers. That exactly, it's not entirely sure to me that it was ineluctable that they could not have simply been assimilated. But that would be looking at it as a from one prism. What do we do with these individuals who've made this move? I think what makes Jefferson so ahead of his time is he's not just thinking in terms of individuals. He does very often, but he also sees collectives. Sometimes those are cultural, Amerindians against um, Americans. Sometimes they're within the American people. I mean, that famous letter he writes about trying to stop, I think it's John Taylor, from moving towards secession after the alien sedition laws, where he says that, be patient, the reign of witches will end. But hidden in that, that the part that most scholars don't wanna share with the public, but we'll we'll be guilty, is what he says is, look, we good Jeffersonian Republicans are always gonna have enemies, right? There's gonna be divisions. There's different kinds of people in this country. It's a good thing that Connecticut's our enemy because no one likes Yankees.
1: If we don't have them to be the enemy, then we'll wind up fracturing ourselves. And so let's let's allow the Federalists to be the enemy. Yeah. And particularly,
2: they they thought they were being ridden by Connecticut, particularly Connecticut. For some reason, he didn't like Connecticut. But that does suggest that he doesn't see the American people as a people. He sees it as made up of a diversity of, of strains, a Yankee strain versus a an American, i.e. Virginian strain. Those were the eastern colonies and the northern colonies and then what he would have considered the southern colonies. And that, you know, that is part of what was interesting about early Romanticism was the an early attempt to formulate the idea of, of distinct cultures. And I think he's sensitive to that. That's why I think he's obsessed with collecting as many Indian languages as possible. He's really an early, both archaeologist
1: and anthropologist. I thought the letter you were going to point to is brings up another um, theme in Jefferson, another quality of his mind that I think makes him unusual and maybe unique. He, he sees culture from 38,000 feet often. So he wrote that famous letter, I think it was to Thomas Ludlow, late in life, and he said, if you could drift across the continent, you would see out in the far west these savages who are living in a state of nature, and it's not pretty, but they have a maximum of individual liberty. And then you move to natives who are sort of semi assimilated and they're, they're a little bit easier to deal with but they've lost something then he said now our own semi-barbarous frontiersmen who are gouging each other's eyes and biting each other's ears off but they keep alive the sacred spirit of liberty and then you have <laughs> the people on the eastern coast and they're moving towards opera and maybe decadence yeah. but the ideal. The ideal is right where I live, on the Piedmont, we're looking a little west and looking a little east. We're not going to be over-civilized like those urbanites, but we're not going to be savage like the eye-gougers of the west. I mean, who else looks at this this way? I mean, he's, he's climbing up over America and looking at the process and the dynamisms of civilization from 38,000 feet. And he's trying to see what's, what's the nature of this culture that we've created here. Well, that's part of what makes him so interesting is he's, uh, the reason I call him a visionary is
2: because not that he's fantasizing and dreaming, we all do that too. And I think he comes from his aesthetic sensibility. He, ne- he feels the need to pull together as much data as he can into an overarching interpretation I I think that's actually what allows him to be an early romantic. Because I think what the Enlightened tended to do was say, no, give me a very small thing that I can bite on and chew on and work it through. And then we're done with that. And we'll go on to, they don't all have to connect. And I think he felt the need to make them all connect. And um, it has its downsides. You don't necessarily see the details accurately, as I pointed out with the Cherokee. And he is instrumental, I think, you know, I think that he is instrumental in Indian removal. He's the one who basically says they're getting out of here. And then it's just a matter of rolling it up.
1: Then he wants a ruthless guy like Jackson to come
2: along and do it. Everyone wants someone else to be the bagman, man. So that, that's the downside of it. But the upside of it is that it speaks to our hearts as well as our heads to use his language. And in mass participatory democracy for good or ill, that is often the most democratic way of pulling people together into a shared mission, a shared community, and a shared project, as as much through the the heart as through the head, and giving them that overall vision of how everything hangs together. It may not be a perfect vision. It may not explain everything, but it it, it makes
1: politics interesting because it's about more than just facts and numbers. It's about, quote, values. Plus, Jefferson, a point you make in your book is Jefferson... It's attractive to people across the entire political spectrum. Take his first inaugural address, for example, a wise and fruitful country with room enough for the hundredth and the thousandth generation. He's singing the song of America in this kind of visionary way. And almost anybody can get behind this. MAGA can get behind this, and so can AOC, and so can Bernie Sanders. (laughs) And everyone wants that America because it's so, A, beautiful, and B, vague. Well, that's the key divisions. that that's so every every
2: plus has its minus, the beauty of being able to pull us all together is you can only pull people together at a level of abstraction. I would argue in moments of great crisis, that Jeffersonian legacy of visionary politics has been indispensable in keeping us free. I think of the articulation of the four freedoms by Franklin Roosevelt, which, you do not want to look too specifically at what they mean because they mean whatever you want them to mean. But they sure sound great and they're ready to get you ginned up and to fight those damn Nazis, right? At some point, that is what you need. But is the downside of it is that they are any principles that are large enough to attract both Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich, right? They both see Thomas Jefferson as they're the ones fighting for him and they're on the opposite side. It tells you that that's the, one of the problems with visions, is that you, the, the vision get, tries to connect a lot of uh, disparate things, but the connections are underdetermined by the the facts, and there's a lot of wiggle room. A- another way of putting it is, I, I think one of the charming things about Jefferson is, and I've argued his is a very principled politics, but it's principled as a romantic in the wonderful way that... Um, groucho marx was as a professor <laughs> you know what i'm talking horse feathers i think it is where he says gentlemen these are my principles if you don't like them i have others <laughs> and, to be fair i mean that's what makes him a successful not politician but a successful state statesman is that he has so many principles that when one isn't working he can just move on to the next
1: at the center of jefferson is a baseline belief that the american people are up to it yeah. So that notion that he has that I mean he says this really only works if you educate people liberally and this only really works if you have subdivisions in your uh, in your jurisdictions right. and this only works if you tear up the Constitution from time to time and he has all these wonderful schemes of how we can keep this thing alive and keep it uh, in tune with the dynamics of American civilization and enlightenment but in, but his bottom line is, the people are up to it. They'll muddle through. They have common sense. They have a moral sense and they have common sense. And so they're ultimately reliable. They may not be reliable this Tuesday or that November, but ultimately they are reliable. And so he was able to maintain that optimism in the face of some pretty serious challenges to it over the course of his lifetime. I steer my bark with hope at the bow and, and fear at the stern. Yeah, I mean,
2: that's that's a... a I, I think that's, that's what makes him a sunny romantic, an optimistic romantic, rather than a, a dreary, depressive, you know, Horace Walpole in <laughs> the castle of Otranto, you know. So yes, I think that's right. Um, and I think he also had an un, uh, almost unyielding confidence in science and in the future and in progress. Um, and that, I think, is, is, does distinguish him from not so
0: much Hamilton as Adams. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour. Welcome back to the thomas jefferson hour this week a special one-on-one conversation between clay jenkinson and professor darren staloff
1: darren staloff has really attempted to make sense of the the dialogue within the enlightenment that was the american founding you know i, I say frequently on this program that the enlightenment's greatest achievement was america AND ITS GREATEST SINGLE DOCUMENT WAS NOT THE DECLARATION OF INDEPENDENCE, ALTHOUGH THAT'S ONE OF THE GIANTS OF HUMAN HISTORY. IT WAS THE CONSTITUTION OF THE UNITED STATES OF 1787 AND THE BILL OF RIGHTS, WHICH SOON FOLLOWED. Uh, DARREN Staloff IS AWARE OF ALL OF THESE DYNAMICS OF THIS PERIOD, AND HE'S HELPING US TO SORT THEM OUT. LET'S, re- let's RETURN TO HIS CONVERSATION. In their late correspondence Adams says hey this I this I just read this letter where you said that all the wisdom in the world is in the past nothing new ever happens I don't believe that at all how dare you say that Yeah and then Jefferson says well I've gone through my letters and I I found on such and such a date that that's precisely what you said and cuz Jefferson of course is the best record keeper of all the founding fathers and he can quote anyone back to anyone but Adams is is upset because he thinks that Jefferson has mischaracterized him which in part he did those were tough well, I, years in the 90s but he was also onto something well that, i think that comes down to i mean
2: all three of these guys fight with each other and that's why i picked them to represent their regions because it's a it's a fair and even fight i think you picked the key letter in that correspondence by the way for their philosophical disagreements that's adams is complaining about in that letter and it takes him a couple of years to get to it is why he wants to have this correspondence because that hurt him and what jefferson is essentially saying and it was a letter i think he wrote to may have been Priestly, is basically, Adams has given up on the Enlightenment and the Federalists have too. They've become, you know, reactionaries. They're really fighting, as I've argued in another piece, they're fighting for the mantle of enlightenment there. Part of what that exposes is their very different strains of enlightenment and also the different readings they did. And this is, again, something that I think is important to keep in mind with Jefferson, is he doesn't stop reading. And he doesn't stop learning and he doesn't stop developing. And uh, what Adams recognizes is that um, Jefferson's become a devotee of a a school of French thought that develops in, it's developing in the 1780s, even in the 1770s, but it really explodes uh, under um, the directorate and then, then under Napoleon called ideology. And that that's the mature Jefferson's thought. And when Adams sees that, he sees how far that's moved from Jefferson's old trinity of Locke, Bacon, and Newton. Now it's De Tracy and Cabanis and and Condorcet, and this is some this is some really radical stuff. And, and I all think
1: Adams that, can do is sputter. Remember, he says ideology in about six different ways. He's just sputtering to show that he doesn't really understand it. So what I think Jefferson does for
2: him when when he tells him, "Look, I'm a huge fan of the Stute de Tracy." And I can send you his manuscript because Jefferson translated them and had them published in English. So no one knows them better than him. Adams reads them. I mean, that's clear from the correspondence. Uh, one of the things that's remarkable about Adams is he is the ultimate bookworm. I mean, he just eats books. Uh, at one point, he said, he, he, to, he told Jefferson that his, his pattern of reading, and Jefferson said, you, you know, you're crazy. I you thought I was a out. reader, you know? Yeah, he's a voracious reader. You need to get out more. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think he did come to understand it. He also knew the guys. Jefferson met them at the, uh, in a, in a, in a, the village of, a, I don't know how to pronounce it, a toy or a tie, where uh, Madame Helvetius held her salon. And that that was the salon for the ideologues, right? DuPont and Nemours is there and Tanyon and Cabanis and all those guys. Obviously, Franklin is there because he's he's chasing Madame El Petwe, he's trying to pitch woo to her. But Adams had frequented it too, and he knew um, De Tracy. And once he understands it and he comes to understand it, after a couple letters, he stops debating with Jefferson because he's like, I get it, we're just on different planets. One of the features of Anglo-American enlightenment, philosophically, is that it's anti-systematic. Indeed, most 18th century thought is anti-systematic. It's rejecting the large metaphysical structures built by people like Descartes or Hobbes or Spinoza, in terms of much more small-bore, small, small uh, knowledge is plural. I mean, it's but not going to... Doesn't kind of, Adams also
1: I, think, with respect to all of this kind of talk and writing, that... There is a core problem in any way you want to look at this, and that is human nature is not always a pretty thing. And if you can design systems until the cows come home, but you've got to deal with the fact that humans are a disappointing creature when it comes to creating uh, rational and ideal systems, and I, when yeah. I think about Adams, I always think that his attitudes towards Jefferson is: Have you looked around much? Have you Have you looked at the people of Virginia? Do you really understand what's going on? Because people are people, and, and and if you don't have some kind of a realism about that, you're going to put a system in place that can't possibly succeed because it doesn't face facts.
2: I think you're right. It mean, is definitely Adams' view. I don't know that he, he has a doer view of human nature.
3: <laughs> I re- think,
1: very realistic. Yes. And
2: I, I would say enlightened. I, I would say what's happened is we've gone through waves of romanticism such that as we look at a realistic view, we tend to see it as doer. But I don't think it is. I think Adams thinks that people are capable of love and kindness, he believes they have benevolent dispositions, but he also believes that they have again, to jump ahead a century, uh, an ungodly will to power, and that you'll find that in the Apprentice Shop as well as in the White
1: House. You call it the rage for distinction, that every human being has a rage for distinction. Exactly. And and we look at that today, having gone through
2: sort of enlightened uh, romantic optimism and say, well, how dreadful. But, you know, Adams had gotten that largely from Smith's theory of moral sentiments. And the enlightened approach to that is it's not all that bad. You know, if you believe in God, and I think Smith did, and he has an invisible hand, he gave us those emulative principles or drives, competitive drives and drives for domination so that they could be useful for other people if you structure them correctly. And that, weirdly enough, turns out to be Adam's tragic vision towards the end of his life. when he, Because he's obsessed with the, the passion for distinction, because it's what drives him. That's his whole life, is he wants to be recognized. And at the end, uh, I, I think it I think it may be in a letter to Jefferson, maybe not. Um, he, he says something very chilling and profound, which is you realize the desire for power and distinction is not good for the person who has it. It's good for everyone else. And I think he's thinking of himself when he says, you know, you spend a lifetime pursuing power and serving your country for your reputation and your fame and moral, when you could have spent it with your wife and children. And I think in Adam's case, it's very poignant. He spent decades in, in, in uh, away from his farm in Congress, and then in uh, doing diplomatic service in Europe and brought one of his kids with him eventually, but lost the other one, Charlie, who was his favorite. Charlie went bad and he died at a young age of alcohol abuse and you know just a broken life. And I think that's, that's Adam's enlightened tragic vision, which is, uh, yeah, and I, I was pursuing something that wasn't going to make me happy. I may have served my country, I may have done great good for humanity, but, you know, if I was really selfish, I would have just stayed a country lawyer. <laughs> I would have been a much happier person.
1: I agree with that. What would he have said, however, had he been celebrated in, in the same pantheon as Jefferson and Washington? Thin odds of that, but okay. <laughs> very deep disappointment and bitterness that he was never given his due as a major figure in American life he said Jefferson ran away with the declaration of independence and, you know, you know, the envy that, that comes dripping out of, and the bitterness out of Adam's pen. If he had been lionized, would he have thought that the sacrifice of personal happiness had been worth it? I don't know. I mean, I, it, it's an interesting thing
2: because on the one hand that is, he he's self-aware that vanity is this overwhelming passion. And it's quite possible that that might have assuaged uh, he certainly tries after his presidency to justify himself publicly, and he just can't bring himself to do it. But there's another part of Adams, and it's while he's a very secular person, he's probably, in fact, m- more of a religious radical than Jefferson, even, because he seems to be not only Unitarian, but a Universalist. But there is a part of him that is kind of Calvinist and and self-interrogatory, and uh, That's part of what makes him such a weird guy, but so lovable to 21st and late 20th century people is that no one is harder on John Adams than John Adams. And uh, one gets the sense that he can see through himself more than a little bit, that he knows he's engaged in self-pity. And uh, while he'll never get the the rewards of history, he kind of knows he will because he did this correspondence with Jefferson and it, you know Jefferson may have all the political plaudits but at some point scholars are going to read it over but we, which by the way is what changed their reputations right i mean Adams was not a very big figure in the early 20th century and Jefferson went through the sky when uh, he was rehabilitated during the new deal but then foolishly they began the publication of the Jefferson papers <laughs> and foolishly the publication of of the Adams papers and you can still be a Jeffersonian, but if you read Adams as a 20th century person, his personality is just, you you can't help love John Adams. And in his letters, Jefferson's a little bit less lovable. He's a little bit cold, and um, he's a little bit manipulative
1: in a way. Well, that's so unfair to Jefferson, as you know, because he's an exquisite 18th century gentleman, a character out of a Jane Austen yeah. novel, perfectly mannered. He doesn't want to argue with Adams. He just wants to talk about the weather and how are we doing and your grandchildren and what have you been reading lately. And we're part of the band of brothers. And Adams, as you can just tell, he's thinking, how much aggression can I show to Jefferson and not blow this thing and not drive him away? And he waits and he pounces and he puts Jefferson on the spot because he needs vindication. And Jefferson just wants harmony. And so Jefferson's, his, his, enormous elan and elegance and detachment is what made him a perfect 18th century gentleman in some respects and Adams was the outlier and now we've reversed because we can't as we like to say relate to Jefferson's mannerism. I think that's true it's the same reason that
2: people um, uh, today I think still feel immense respect for Washington but it's hard to feel a lot of affection because he 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 played the part of George Washington. He's was very stiff, very formal. In a weird way, because he's so flawed, uh, Hamilton's a little more endearing, right? Because because he does screw up and have
1: affairs, you know. He's always going to wreck it, whatever. I mean, he couldn't <laughs> not wreck whatever success he had. That's right. He's a- you, you, you know, you 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 have a high praise for Hamilton in this book. I think it's the best defense of Hamilton that I've read. Well, thank uh, you. It's, it's really brilliant and i think you place him squarely in the sort of humean tradition of commerce yeah. and that he was he, that he saw things that jefferson was blind to like the na- the nature of an advanced financial uh, infrastructure yeah. and so on but what strikes me about hamilton is his I mean, explain this why does hamilton write the reynolds pamphlet we know i mean you can give an answer we can all give the answer okay. right that he was trying to protect his public reputation, et cetera. But but what kind of a moron writes the Reynolds pamphlet? Yeah, I know that's, uh, you can imagine,
2: I I, I, I always in my head imagine the huge grin from ear to ear that James Madison has as he reads it. (laughs) This is what they call in European soccer an own goal. You put this in yourself. But if you try to get into Hamilton's head, he's a very weird egg. Because on the one hand, he has the doer, he has the truly door view of human nature. He thinks they're all scoundrels. And yet, you get the sense he grew up reading Plutarch's Lives, and he never got beyond that. He, he sees never got himself.
1: beyond Coriolanus.
2: Yes, I think, well, that, that's the one I identify him with. And, right. But um, Coriolanus, because for us, Coriolanus is this horrible, aristocratic jerk. But it's not for Shakespeare. For Shakespeare, he is ideal, his one weakness is his sentimentality about his mother. He should just kick her to the curb, but he is a purely good Roman and those tribunes are just wrong. And those plebs, you want the extra grain, come join me in the field, get the blood and scars on you and then we'll talk about it. And I think that's the world in which Hamilton as a child, and it probably was a fantasy because he lived the hardest childhood of any of them, uh, sustains himself that he would be that kind of heroic figure. From that heroic perspective, classical, Plutarchian perspective, to have engaged in sexual profligacy is trivial if one had been pure in one's fiscal behavior. And he was pure in his fiscal behavior. He just didn't recognize the world in which he lived, where people might forgive the fiscal stuff more than the infidelity. And confessing that, you know, I mean, this is real Hamilton and it's hard hard to get past it. she seduces him. She starts blackmailing him.
1: He starts paying. He still sleeps with her. Her husband says, if you keep paying me, you can continue to give her consolation. And he writes this down in a
2: pamphlet. I think what that tells you is that Hamilton, foolishly, doesn't think that's going to reflect that badly on him. That what, what's really important is that people will see that he behaved financially uh, and in government with complete and utter integrity, which he did. But that that's part of his foolishness is he doesn't understand the role the press is going to have. It's hard for us because we have to get back in that moment. He was skewered in the Jeffersonian press. They just because they couldn't go after Washington. Washington yeah. you just you, you, you can't touch George. And even going after Adams is sort of tough, because if you put Jefferson up against Adams now, Jefferson is way high. And we've seen all the amazing things he does as president. But. In the 1790s, he doesn't have the accomplishments Adams does. I mean, he's he's a younger guy. Yeah, he drafted a document, but that document's not a particularly big deal at the time. It will be in the the 1790s. It'll start to become a big deal. But it's just not at that moment. Adams is, after Franklin and Washington, undisputably the father of this country. So Hamilton's who you get. They beat the crap out of him. And um, Hamilton thought, if I just refute those charges...
1: I'll be vindicated. Well, he does refute those charges, but it hurts him worse than anything. But that you know that that uh, deep and prickly sense of personal honor uh, that is Hamilton led to many affairs of honor, as Joanne Freeman describes them. And of course, the Coriolanus figure that he is creating for himself is going to wind up at Weehawken. Yeah. So that there is there's that in him too. That he it's like it's almost like a Greek tragedy now that his fate is is hastening him towards Weehawken. And even though he doesn't want to do it, and Burr doesn't even really want to do it, they both kind of wish they could figure a way out of this. Hamilton can't. He can't let himself wriggle free.
2: Yeah. Well, I think also his, so, you know, we were talking about Hamilton's uh, transformation. I think of the three of them as a young man, and Hamilton is significantly younger than those other two, so this may explain it. He's the most sanguine in his view of the Americans. And in the promise of Pete, because it's, it's Plutarch's lives were the comic books of their time. And so, you know, everyone's heroic and, uh, and I think his disillusionment as a result is, is, the, um, is the harshest, but um, he's still trapped in, you know, a, a sort of neoclassical political horizon where,
1: you know, either you're heroic or you're just horrible. I've so enjoyed this. I hope you have. Anytime you want to talk, um, I'd love to have you back and and, and more discussions. This is uh, this is perfect.
2: Well, let's let's be on email together and uh, work it out.
0: A wonderful conversation that I was fascinated to listen to. It.
1: Yeah, his previous book is called "The Making of an American Thinking Class: Intellectuals and Intelligentsia." in Puritan, Massachusetts. He's agreed to come on to the Jefferson Hour again. Excellent. I look forward to that.
0: Meanwhile, sir, we are out of time, and it's time to say goodbye and thank our listeners.
1: Uh, Thanks to all of you. We'll see you next week for another important edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour.
3: The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. To obtain a copy of this or any show for a $12 donation, please call 701-575-0727 This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program, Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson.